Amen. Well, I invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And uh, we are currently in a series in 1 Corinthians. We've been walking through uh, this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, verse by verse, passage by passage. And so uh, this morning we're in 1 Corinthians 5. We looked at the first half of this chapter last week, and we're going to conclude this chapter by looking at the second half this week. And so I'm going to read the chapter in its entirety, uh, beginning verse 1 and read through to verse 13, and then we'll focus this morning on verses 6 through 13, so the second uh, portion of the passage, okay? So please follow along in your Bible as I read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and uh, if you're using one of the black Bibles that's provided for you there, In the pew, uh, you'll find our passage on page 954. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in the spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. God, we're so grateful for your word, and as we have many times before, we come to this time and we call out for your help. Lord, help us. Give us understanding and insight into your word. And Lord, we trust you. As we've just sung, we trust you with this time. We trust that you will help us by your spirit. We trust that you will empower us by your spirit. We trust that you'll give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We trust, Lord, that you will use this time, that that it won't just be a time where we've met and kind of checked off the box. We did that, but Lord, it will be a time that you work and move in our lives and you change us and increasingly make us the church you want us to be. So, Father, do that work, we pray. We trust you, and we will give you all the praise and glory for what you do. And it's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, last week as we were looking at this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we considered the responsibility of discipline and the salvation of souls. 
And we saw that in the church in Corinth, there was one among their members who was involved in a very grievous, sexually immoral relationship. He was having a sexual relationship with his father's wife. So he was in an immoral relationship with his stepmother. And Paul addresses this and he speaks to the church in Corinth and he says, listen, Corinth, it is your responsibility to call this man to repentance. It's your responsibility, in fact, to discipline this man. And, and what Paul had in mind when, he said, when he's calling the church to discipline this man was that they were to remove this man. In other words, they were to remove him from the membership roles of the church to make a distinction between themselves as followers of Christ and this man who was so blatantly walking in opposition to the teachings of Jesus. And so Paul calls the church to discipline this man, to remove him from their midst. They are responsible to do this, and the purpose for which they are to do it is for the salvation of this man's soul. As Paul states it in verse 5, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So we saw that the responsibility of the church is to discipline those who are in belligerent, unrepentant, persistent sin, walking away from Christ, rejecting His teaching and His call to follow Him. And we saw that the purpose of this discipline is always redemptive. It's for the salvation. It's for the salvation of the one who has wandered and strayed from Christ. Now this week, we continue to consider this subject of discipline. In our passage this morning, we will see the responsibility of discipline and the purity of the church. So as we come to the second part of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we see that in Paul addressing this matter of the unmoral man in the congregation in the church in in Corinth, Paul is not only concerned with the salvation of this individual soul, but he is also concerned with the purity of the church in Corinth. You know, today people say that the church is to be a lot of different things, that the church is to aspire to be any number of different things. Depending on who you're talking to, some people will say, you know, the church really needs to be healthy. Or the church today really needs to be relevant. Or the church today really needs to be missional. Or the church today really needs to be culturally sensitive and socially engaged. And depending on how you define any number of those things, I would probably agree with most of it. But it's easy for us to forget or perhaps to neglect the reality that God has also called His people, the church, to be holy. To be holy. This is clearly the call of God upon His people in the Scriptures. And in fact, we won't understand what Paul has to say here about church discipline, and we won't understand God's call upon the church to be pure if we don't understand what God has said about His people and their responsibility to be holy. This goes really all the way back to the Old Testament Scriptures, where Israel, who constituted the people of God in the Old Testament, were called by God to be a holy people. So in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2, we read there, Moses, God is speaking to Moses, and God says, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And then when we come into the New Testament, in the New Testament, the church is the new constituted people of God. And again, we see this call that the people of God are to be, just like Israel was in the Old Testament, 
holy. So Peter, writing to the churches in his day, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And this theme of holiness continues throughout Peter's letters. So in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, Peter writes to the churches and he says, But as He who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. And then Peter uses a Bible verse to support what he's saying. And he appeals back to Leviticus and what God had said to Israel in the Old Testament. And Peter says, just as it is written, and then he cites Leviticus, you shall be holy for I am holy. My friends, it is true that the church has a better chance of being culturally acceptable and more widely embraced if we are relevant, if we are culturally sensitive, if we are socially engaged. But it is also true that the church will never finally be pleasing to God and all that God would have it to be and make the impact that God would have it to be if the church is not all that God calls her to be. And surely God has called the church to be holy, to reflect His character to the world. With that in mind, I want us to consider this morning from our passage three ways in which church discipline benefits the church. Three ways in which church discipline benefits the church. First of all, we'll see that discipline protects the church. Secondly, we will see that discipline purifies the church. And then third, we will see that discipline demarks the church. So first of all, we see in our passage that discipline protects the church. Look there in verse 6 and we read these words. Paul says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now you might remember that in the letter that Paul has written here to the Corinthians, Paul repeatedly addresses the pride and arrogance of the church in Corinth. So in chapter 5, verse 2, Paul addresses the church's response or lack of response to this immoral man who's in their midst. And he says in verse 2 of chapter 5, And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? And then he picks up this theme again now in verse 6 of chapter 5 when Paul rebukes the church for her pride. And he says, Your boasting is not good. And so we've seen from this letter that Paul writes to the church in Corinth that in the church in Corinth there was kind of a general attitude of boasting and arrogance. In other words, the church in Corinth thought very well of themselves. They were very proud of themselves. If you read through the letter to the Corinthians, it's apparent that the the folks in the church in Corinth thought they were particularly knowledgeable and wise and spiritually gifted. But what Paul is saying here in this verse is, listen... Your boasting is not good because what you don't realize, you're boasting about all these things that you're so proud of, that you're knowledgeable, that you're wise, that you're gifted, and you don't realize that you are in grave spiritual danger. Because there is unrepentant, persistent sin in your midst, and you have been unwilling to address it. Paul uses the illustration of leaven to make this point. Now, I'll have to say I had to do a little bit of research here because I'm not much of a cook. When Nikki, my wife, is gone, me and the kids, we pretty much eat frozen pizza or fish sticks. That's about the extent of my culinary skills. Uh, But I did a little bit of research and found out some interesting things about leaven. 
The word leaven actually means to lighten or cause to rise. And in Paul's day, leaven was made by keeping back a little bit of the dough from uh, the previous week's batch. And then certain juices would be added and it would be put in a certain environment and then that dough would begin to ferment. It would become a little bit moldy and it would begin to ferment. And then that little bit of moldy dough would be used to put in the new batch. And when it was put in the new batch of dough, it would cause that dough to rise. And it would cause the loaf to, to rise. Now, now, there was a danger, though, in, firm, in this fermenting process because if it went too far, if it went too far, then the leaven would get contaminated and it would, or, or it would become increasingly in can, contaminated and it would contaminate the entire loaf. And the only way at that point to get rid of the bacteria would be to throw out the entire loaf. And so what Paul is saying here is that unrepentant sin in the church is like a little bit of leaven. It's like a bacteria, it's like a toxin that if not addressed, if not, um, if, if not uh, given attention to, has the potential to infect and contaminate the entire church. Now, this, this illustration of leaven also is, is used in modern terms when you hear somebody make the statement, you've probably heard this statement before, a bad apple spoils the whole barrel. A bad apple spoils the whole barrel. And that's what Paul is saying here. Listen, he's saying to the church in Corinth, if you continue to permit this incestuous relationship to go unaddressed in the church, don't be surprised if in the months and in the weeks and in the days ahead that you have sexual immorality in all types of forms spreading throughout your congregation. Paul is saying to the church here that sin cannot be quietly coddled in a community. It cannot be quietly coddled within the, the community of the people of God without spreading and corrupting the whole. And so what's the remedy? What's the remedy to this sin that can kind of insidiously spread throughout the people of God? What we see in the Scriptures and what we see in this passage here is that one of the remedies is a holy fear that comes upon the people of God through discipline. In fact, we see this in other places in the New Testament. If you remember early on at the church in Jerusalem in the book of Acts, uh, the church in Jerusalem is growing and expanding and God is blessing the church. And there was a couple in the church, Ananias and Sapphira, and they come before the apostles and they lie to the apostles about how they're handling their finances. They've actually been withholding money from the church that belongs to the church, and the apostles address them on this issue, and they lie about it. And in this situation, the church doesn't have to intervene because God Himself takes action. And if you remember, what happens is God strikes this couple dead. And we read the reaction of the church in Jerusalem once God has enacted His discipline upon Ananias and Sapphira. In Acts chapter 5, verse 11, we read, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. God disciplined this couple and there was fear, a holy fear that came upon the people of God. 
Paul writing to young Timothy, who was a pastor who was given responsibility to care for the church in Ephesus. He writes to him in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 20, and he's speaking to Timothy about the responsibility of addressing sin among the leaders and the elders of the church in Ephesus. He says, listen, if there are some among the leaders and the elders in the church in Ephesus and they are in unrepentant, persistent sin, this is how I want you to handle it. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 20, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all. And why? Paul tells us, so that the rest may stand in fear. In other words, if there's a leader in the church, if there's an elder in the church, and he's involved in some grievous sin, and the church and the leaders of the church call that man to repent, they call him to turn back to Christ, but he refuses to do so. Paul says this is a matter that needs to be brought before the whole church so that the church will know that this behavior is not acceptable. So that the church might fear. You see, in the Scriptures we're told that there is a healthiness, there's a, there is something good about a holy fear coming upon the people of God. So that in discipline we see for ourselves the consequences, the, the bitterness of sin. And then with humble and broken hearts, we fear and we say, Oh God, but by Your grace, so go I. Please help me. Save me. Keep me. Make me holy and pure before You. Discipline is good for the church because it protects the church from the spread of insidious sin. Secondly, we see here in our passage that Paul tells us that discipline purifies the church. Discipline purifies the church. Look there in verses 7 and 8 and we read these words. Paul says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So discipline not only protects the church from sin, but discipline cleanses and purifies the church so that the church is then set apart and made holy to God. Now, there may be some, though, who would object and say, well, you know, in all this talk about church discipline and addressing sin and so forth, where's the gospel in all this? I mean, I mean doesn't the gospel teach us about God's forgiveness and His grace and His mercy and His redemption? This all seems like we're kind of working to achieve God's approval or, or God's favor. But what I want you to see here in these verses is that Paul places discipline, church discipline, he places it squarely in the context of the gospel, of God's free grace granted to us in Christ. Paul does not see discipline as contrary to or in opposition to the gospel, but rather a natural consequence and flowing out of the gospel. In fact, in these verses, Paul assures us that the purity and the holiness of the church is not something fundamentally that is is achieved by the church, Right? So we achieve holiness and purity before God, but it's something that is received by the church by grace. Notice how he states this in these verses. He says in verse 7, he's continuing using this imagery of leaven. He says in verse 7, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. 
So in order for the church to be holy, in order for them to be set apart and pure before God, in this situation there is something that they must do. There's an action that they must take. There is a man that is in unrepentant, persistent sin. And Paul is calling the church in these verses to take decisive action. The man must be removed from among them. But then notice that Paul follows up his command with an objective affirmation of who they already are. In verse 7, he says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Here it is. As you really are unleavened. That is a wonderful thing that Paul says there. As you already are unleavened. In other words, what Paul is saying is, You are church in Corinth. You are already unleavened. You are already holy. You are already pure. You are already uncontaminated before God. How in the world could Paul say such a thing? How could Paul say such a thing to a church that was so clearly marked by sin and division and carnality? Paul tells us in the very next line, right? 4, verse 7, he says, You are already unleavened, for because... Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Now stay with me here. Paul is actually pulling together several different things, right? Paul is pulling together this idea of unleavened bread, a sacrificial offering of a lamb, and the Passover. And why does Paul pull together all these things? Because all of these were different components of what was known as the Passover festival. It was a feast that the Jews celebrated. During this feast, the Jews were only permitted to eat unleavened bread. It was a sign that they were to be a people set apart and holy to God. And so, for a time period, they were only to eat unleavened bread. But there was something even more fundamental and substantial to the whole Passover festival. And it even more so than unleavened bread. And it was the sacrifice, the sacrificial lamb of the Passover. Do you remember what happened during the Passover? What it was they were celebrating? If you remember the history of Israel, Israel was under bondage and in slavery to Egypt for hundreds of years. But God in His mercy and grace sent a deliverer, sent Moses. And God, in order to deliver the people of Israel from slavery and bondage, He sent a plague. He sent judgment upon the people of Egypt. He said that He was going to slaughter the firstborn child of every family in Egypt until they let His people go. But before He sent the angel of death to slaughter every firstborn child in the, house of, uh, in the houses of Egypt, the Lord told the people of Israel to sacrifice a lamb. They were to take the blood of that lamb and they were to put it over the doorpost of their homes. And so when that death angel came through Egypt and when the, when the angel of death was taking the lives of every firstborn child, every firstborn son in the homes of Egypt, he would see the blood that was put on the doorpost of the house of Israel and he would pass over. Every single person in that home would be spared. Every child in that home would be spared because the blood had been put on the doorpost and the blood was a sign that the lamb, the sacrificial lamb, had died in their place. Had died in their place for their sins so that they might be saved, so that they might be passed over. 
And so what Paul is saying here is, listen, listen, church, the Passover lamb has already been slain on your behalf. Do you know that in the Gospels, when we come to the death of Jesus Christ, every one of the Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all set the death of Jesus in the context of the Passover festival. You know, when Jesus is having the last meal with His disciples and He breaks the bread and He passes the wine, you know that that was a Passover meal? That was a Passover festival. They were celebrating the Passover feast. And when Jesus breaks the bread and He says, this is my body broken for you. And when He passes the cup and He says, this is the blood of the covenant that is shed for the sins of many, Jesus is essentially saying to the disciples who are gathered around Him, I am the Passover lamb. I am the one who will be slain. My blood will be shed. So that if you believe and trust in Me, the judgment and the wrath of God will pass over you. You will not be condemned. You will not be, you will not be judged. You will not be slain. You will be saved because I am giving my life in your place. Paul says to the church in Corinth, listen, the Passover lamb has already been slain. Jesus was slain on your behalf. And by believing and trusting in Him, you've already been washed clean. You've already been made holy. You've already been made pure. You're already uncorrupt. Therefore, now live consistent with who you are. Because you are already holy in Christ. Because the Passover lamb has been slain in your behalf. Live consistent with who you are in Jesus. Be a holy and pure people set apart for God. Oh, my friends, we need to remember that practicing church discipline in the final analysis does not make us holy before God. You know, there's a danger, isn't it, in churches that may practice church discipline and try to be faithful to the teaching of Scripture on these matters. There can be a danger that we kind of become self-righteous, right? We're the church that practices church discipline. We're really holy before God. No, that doesn't make us holy before God. Not in the least. The only thing that makes us holy before God is the Passover lamb has been slain in our behalf. And we, by the grace and mercy of God, have been declared holy and pure in Him. And now, as the people of God, we seek to live consistent with who we already are in Christ. To be a pure people as God has already made us pure in Christ. The third thing we see here, the third benefit of discipline, is not only does discipline protect the church, not only does discipline purify the church, but third, discipline demarks the church. It makes a distinction between who the church is and who the world is. Look there in verses 9 to 13, and we read these words. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since you would need to go out of the world, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now it seems here in verse 9 that Paul is responding to an objection. So, Paul 
has already written them a letter. He says there in verse 9, prior to this letter that he's written to them, he says, I wrote to you in my letter. So there was a previous letter. And he wrote to them not to associate with sexually immoral people. But some have misunderstood Paul's instructions. Some perhaps have said, oh, Paul, this is way too harsh and impractical. Not, you're telling us not to associate with sexually immoral people. I mean, for crying out loud, we live in Corinth one of the most immoral cities in the world. There's no way we could follow this command. How could we not associate with sexually immoral people? Everyone around us is sexually immoral. And so some may have misunderstood Paul's teaching in this way, thinking it was impractical, it was too harsh. It's also possible that there were some in the church of Corinth who didn't so much misunderstand Paul's teaching as much as they didn't want to understand Paul's teaching, right? There's a difference, isn't there? We can misunderstand what someone says, or we can understand what someone says, but we twist it, or maybe give it a little bit of a different spin, or act like maybe we didn't understand it so that we don't have to actually deal with what they said. Perhaps that's what's going on here as well in the church in Corinth. Nevertheless, Paul addresses this misunderstanding in verse 10, he intends to clarify his original statement. He says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. So let's make it clear here that in Paul advocating the church to practice discipline in this situation, Paul in no way is a separatist. You know what I mean by a separatist? Paul is not one of those fellows who would say, let's get as far away from the world as we can. You know, let's, let's sell our houses and all our possessions. Let's go move up on a mountain and grow our own food and make our own clothes. And let's just get as far away as we can from all those nasty, dirty sinners. You see, some people might take what Paul's saying here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and kind of go in that direction. But Paul won't allow it, will he? Because Paul would say that would betray the mission of Jesus. I have no interest in living such a lifestyle. You know, it was Jesus who was identified as a friend of sinners and tax collectors. It was Jesus who fell under the scorn and rebuke of the Pharisees because he interacted with and spent time with those who were outcast in society. In Mark chapter 2, verse 17, Jesus responding to the scorn of the Pharisees because of the company that he kept. He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. There was something scandalous about the ministry of Jesus and because of who he spent time with, because of the people that he ministered to. And if we are to follow in the steps of Jesus, there should be something scandalous about our own lives and our own ministries. You know, in fact, when Paul came to the city of Corinth, when Paul was spending time originally with those in, Corinthian, in, in the city of Corinth, clearly the people in the church of Corinth, when Paul initially spent time with them, were grossly immoral. And Paul came to them with the message and the love of the gospel. So just one chapter over, actually, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11, through 11, Paul reflects back on this, and Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6-9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, this is beautiful. He says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You see, Paul was not going out of the world. Paul was not separating himself from the world. When he came to Corinth, he was reaching out to adulterers and idolaters and those who were greedy and those who were drunkard and homosexuals and revilers. And he reached out to them with the boldness and love of the gospel. And these individuals came to the reality that I've sinned against God. And they confessed their sin and they repented of their sins and they trust in Jesus. And you know what Paul did? He welcomed them into the church. Paul is not for separating ourselves from the world. Paul says move towards sinners with the love and the truth of the gospel. But, he goes on to say in verse 11, But now I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Now do you see the key distinction there? The key distinction is found in the phrase the one who bears the name of brother. That's the key distinction. Well, what does it mean to bear the name of brother? To bear the name of brother is to say I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a member of the family of God. I've repented of my sins and I've taken up my cross and I'm I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. And why is Paul so concerned that the church would make a distinction between themselves and those who profess to be brother but cling to their old lifestyle? Here's why Paul's so concerned. Because when one professes to follow Jesus but clings and persistently and rebelliously holds on to their, own, their old lifestyle, it confuses people about what the gospel is and it confuses people about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's not that one is, is simply struggling with sin. We all struggle with sin. It's not simply that one stumbles sometimes and then repents and confesses their sin. No, we all experience that as Christians. It's one who persistently embraces sin. The church, maybe church leaders come to them and say, listen, this is clearly contrary to the teaching of Christ and to the Bible. And they say, I hear what you're saying. I hear what the Bible's saying. But I've chosen my way and I'm going this way. And, by the way, I'm a Christian. And Paul says the church has an obligation at that point to say, no, this is not what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And listen, this is where where we can really miss this. Just like if we are separatist, if we say we're not going to We're not going to spend time with immoral people. We're we're too good for that. That undermines the mission of the gospel, right? That's not where we want to go. But at the same time, if we allow unrepentant, persistent, belligerent sin and never make a distinction between what it means to be a follower of Jesus and a lover of the world, that also undermines the mission of the gospel. 
And both, both will undermine the effectiveness of a gospel church. And so Paul is saying here in these verses, don't fall off on either side. Stay within the biblical tension so that the gospel might have all its power and the gospel might, in in all its transforming power, might be seen clearly to the world in the lives of those who claim to follow Jesus. Paul then concludes in verses 12 to 13 by making a very clear statement of putting before the church in Corinth a very clear principle. He says essentially there in verses 12 to 13, you are to judge those not who are outside the church, but you are to judge those who are inside the church. Do you see it there in verses 12 to 13? For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And oh, my friends, we should say with sadness, actually, that this is, in fact, one of the great failures of the modern church. One of the great failures of the modern church is that a church can have a tendency to denounce and to harshly criticize society and what's happening in the culture while turning a blind eye to their own members who are clearly and blatantly rebelling against God and His Word. Isn't that the tendency of many churches? To denounce what's happening around us in culture and in society, but clearly there is unrepentant sin among us and we say nothing. And you know what the world does? The world looks at that and they see the church acting that way and they say, hypocrites. And you know why they say it? Because it's hypocritical. That's why they say it. Paul says, what do I have to do with judging those who are outside the church? God has given us a responsibility as the people of God who are to follow Jesus to hold one another accountable to in fact follow Jesus. And Paul says that's a matter of integrity. Paul says if you want to make an impact on the culture, if you want to make an impact on the world, don't start by calling the world to repentance. There is a place to call them to repentance. But Paul says don't start by calling the world to repentance. Rather, call the church to repentance. And as the church repents and what's consistent with what it means to be a follower of Jesus, watch the impact that it has on the world. You know, in closing, I'll just say that this is one of the reasons why church membership is so important. We, if you're here at Crawford Avenue for any length of time, you'll hear us talk about church membership a good bit. And if you're a believer in Jesus, we'll encourage you and try to push you towards church membership. And and this is just one of the reasons. There's many reasons we see in the New Testament, but this is just one of the reasons. You notice that Paul says here in these verses that there are those who are inside the church and there are those who are outside the church. In other words, in Corinth, there was some way for the church in Corinth to distinguish between those who were members of the church and those who were not members of the church. 
I would assume there was some type of membership role. And one of the reasons why it's important for us to identify ourselves with a church and to say we're inside and we're not outside is because if you're inside, there's the possibility that you could actually be put outside. Did you follow that? If you're inside, there's actually the possibility that the church could put you outside, and that's a good thing. By God's grace, most Christians will never experience that in their lives, and by God's grace, hopefully we would never experience that in our lives. But the Bible calls us to put ourselves in such relationship with the church that if we were to so wander from Christ that we were in persistent, belligerent, unrepentant sin, walking away from Christ, walking away from the gospel, the church would have the authority in our lives to come to us and say, repent, 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 and come back to Christ. And if the church were to do such a thing, that would be good for the preservation of our own souls. That would be good for the purity of the church. That would be good for clarifying what the gospel is. That would be good for the mission of Christ in reaching the world. And so we should all embrace in humility the blessing that God has given us in the church. Commit ourselves to a local body so that we might be held accountable to truly follow Jesus. As the church does this, in an age that is increasingly delights in and celebrates tolerance above all other virtues, the church will be a distinct community. A distinct community that gives a clear voice to what the gospel is and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And this, my friends, will have a power, a power that we could not imagine. A power that will never come in simply proclaiming the gospel but not living consistent with it. Proclaiming the gospel but not calling ourselves to be held accountable to truly following Jesus. It's when we proclaim the gospel and then we consistently demonstrate what it means to be a follower of Jesus that then we are clear heralds of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to give us the grace to do that. Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. Lord, we pray that you would give us clarity on these matters and what you teach us in your scriptures about the church and the role of the church in our lives and even the practice of church discipline. Help us, Lord, as a church to take seriously the responsibility to reflect your character to the world, to be holy and to be pure. And Father, as a result, we pray that we here at Crawford Avenue would be a place of redemption that tells the truth about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, that is a clear witness for the gospel. Help us, Lord, in these things, we pray. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask.